and a warm welcome to the latest edition of Conversations in Drug Development, brought to you by the team at Boyd's. This podcast is for our fellow community of scientists and clinicians working in the wonderful world of cell and gene therapy and drug development. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, my name is Harriet Edwards, and I'm part of the Regulatory Affairs team here at Boyd's and your podcast host for today's episode. Today's episode is going to focus once again on the field of regulatory affairs, and specifically, we're going to look at off-the-shelf cell therapies. I'm joined today by Dr. Patrick Ginty, Senior Director of Regulatory Affairs here at Boyd's. Patrick, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Harriet. It's good to be here. Great. Well, without further ado, then, let's get into today's podcast episode. So we're talking about the field of uh, advanced therapies and specifically looking at cell therapies today. The concept of sort of autologous cell therapies is is quite well known to people and, and we're aware of stem cell therapies and cell therapies generally in drug development. However, what we're going to focus on is a, a little bit more novel. So what do we mean by off the shelf cell therapies? Yes, it's one of those commonly used terms that can be interchangeable and used in many different ways. For the purposes of this talk, cell-based therapies really that are off the shelf, we're talking about those that are manufactured from healthy allogeneic donor material and stored until ready for patient administration. So the simplest way of really saying it is one donor to multiple recipients. So there's no donor patient specificity. So example of that or a few examples of that, products derived from pluripotent stem cell banks or stem cell lines. Products derived from somatic cell banks, they can be genetically modified and non-genetically modified, Mm -hmm. or perhaps more commonly, products derived from single or pooled donor material. Okay, got it. So uh, when we refer to autologous cell therapies, of course, they're not within scope for off-the-shelf, these allogeneic cell therapies. But what else might not be in scope for off-the-shelf cell therapies? Yeah, so it really those allogeneic therapies where there is some donor-recipient specificity. By that, we mean those which are restricted to human leukocyte antigen to avoid immune reactions. And I guess for anybody that's listening into the podcast today that isn't working actively in the field of advanced therapies, what do or, or even immunotherapy, what do we actually mean by HLA? So yeah, HLA, human leukocyte antigen, simplest way of putting it, it's the molecule that enables the immune system to distinguish between self and non-self entities in the body. And we're talking, I guess, focusing on allogeneic cell therapies that are, I guess, coming more to the fore now um, in drug discovery. There's more of an evolution and maybe a move away from autologous cell therapies. But of course, there's still huge benefits with those. What are the benefits of moving towards allogeneic cell therapies and, and more off the shelf offerings? Yeah, as you say, there's been a lot of success with autologous therapies. There's several on the market. There will be several more to come in the coming years, without a shadow of a doubt. But they do come with logistical and manufacturing challenges. For example, they have to use the variability of unhealthy donor material. Obviously, the material comes from the patient who is already Mm -hmm. sick. That can have some issues, uh, difficulty scaling up during the manufacturing process, and also the potentially small window for patient treatment where the latter obviously applies to HLA-matched allogeneic therapies as well, but autologous therapies essentially use the same model. So therapies that can be used off the shelf 
if you like. Uh, don't have this vein-to-vein -vein lag time. Greater scale-up potential and use healthy donor material instead of unhealthy donor material, which again has a lot of advantages in terms of scheduling, but also in terms of manufacturing process consistency. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess there's um, huge benefits when we think about treating larger patient populations with um, allogeneic cell therapies as well, which perhaps autologous cell therapies are more restricted to. Yeah. Um, but of course, we're talking about benefits here, but there must be some risks that developers need to be aware of as well for off-the-shelf. Inevitably, yeah, there's always a trade-off. Um, and here with off-the-shelf cell therapy, one of the major risks, one of the major considerations is alloreactivity. Mm. So that's the major challenge to the broad clinical use of allogeneic products, the idea of being able to scale it up to use in patients across the globe. So you must address the immunologic mismatch between donor and recipient and tackle both the innate and adaptive immune response. Yeah. Um, so the biggest issue with that related to that is allorejection. Yeah. So HLA compatibility remains a major hurdle for all allogeneic therapies, regardless of the cell type or the tissue type. More specifically, you have things like graft-versus-host disease or GVHD. So this is particularly an issue for T-cell therapies as acute GVHD is mediated almost entirely by donor T-cells. And I think um, when we automatically think about potential risks with with cell therapies generally, um, but particularly for the allogeneic ones, we're going to automatically think about immunological concerns. But there are other risks as well, right? So control of viral and infectious diseases is, is something that developers should be aware of too. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, donor testing and screening, the regulatory requirements for those vary very much across the globe. Um, and the use of multiple donors or pooled donor material, as is often used um, for multiple patients, increases the risk because obviously the larger pool of donors you use, the more variable your material, but also the potential is higher for um, detecting infectious diseases or not detecting infectious diseases, as the case may be. Yeah, absolutely. So we know that the allogeneic cell therapies are something that developers really want to look at and consider and, um, you know, push forward. There is this evolution here and we're aware of the benefits. We're now a little bit more aware of the risks as well. Um, what can we do in terms of mitigation strategies to make sure that these cell therapies can be safer? Well, one of the most commonly employed methods is to engineer the cells to be safer themselves. Um, mm -hmm. So there's the cells themselves, obviously, and then there's things you can do around the cells. If we talk about the cells first, GBHD is a good example. Um, there was a product that was on the market in Europe. It's now been withdrawn, unfortunately, but it's called Zalmoxis. Uh, and Zalmoxis had a suicide gene which was triggered by certain drugs. If the patient developed GBHD, the um, clinician could then administer a certain drug which would trigger the suicide gene wow. and then kill the T cells, which would then... Ideally, you know, the idea being that that would then prevent GVHD taking hold. Mm. Um, Aller rejection, as I've mentioned before, is is something that's a, a huge issue. And a lot of work has been going on in many, many years to remove HLA class 1 and class 2 through gene deletion techniques. So things like beta 2 microglobin, uh, class 2 transactivator genes. But still, the resultant cells will remain targets for natural killer cells, um, activity as class one molecules function as ligands for natural killer cell mm -hmm. inhibitory receptors. Yeah. So to overcome this, gene editing techniques have been used to express natural killer cells inhibitory ligands such as HLAE and CD47. And in terms of 
genetic when whenever we talk about genetic engineering genetic modification of cells you know um there's a huge amount of benefit to that but i think people sort of take a gasp as well there is lots to consider in terms of safety and um, making sure that what we're doing to those cells actually is is not going to be detrimental to the end patient as well so is there anything in terms of non-clinical data ahead of getting into the clinic that needs to be considered when you are looking to engineer cells for improved safety yeah there's actually a lot of in vitro and in vivo work that you can do in vitro, particularly when it comes to things like T-cell receptor products, um, you can do an in vitro assessment of alloreactivity in unmatched patients, which can be very, very informative for developing your product. And then from a more in vivo perspective, you can generate supported data from POC studies, proof of concept studies on cell survival in fully immunocompetent allogeneic humanized mice, for example. Well, the technology is just getting better and better, I think. And um, you mentioned just now particularly about gene editing technologies. Um, There's also other methods of uh, genetic modification that can be considered for not just allogeneic cell therapy, but for for lots of different therapies um, out there. But since you mentioned gene editing, Patrick, what can you tell us about um, the incorporation of of gene editing for the development of allogeneic cell therapies? Yeah, it's one of those things which is now coming more and more to the fore. Obviously, Mm. gene editing isn't a new concept, but the application of it in the clinic still is relatively a new concept. Yeah. So techniques such as CRISPR-Cas, Talon, etc., different endonucleases, which people are, are familiar with, for genome editing purposes are being used to engineer safer cellular products, such as the knockout of MHC genes, as I previously referred to. Obviously, gene editing is not immune uh, from the risk of on-target and off-target toxicity. Mm. So, if multi- And this can be donor-dependent. So if you're using an allogeneic product and you have multiple donors, genotoxicity assessment may require additional data sets to be generated on donor-specific basis. So could this be potentially more of a concern for the allogeneic cell therapies than perhaps the autologous? Yeah, exactly. That's right. And non-viral methods may have other safety benefits, obviously, uh, such as the absence of replication-competent virus, for example, Mm. which can be uh, still be an issue with, with viral transduction methods. And you just mentioned non-viral genetic modification. Are there any other benefits of um, using a, a non-viral modification method? Yes, I mean, everyone's probably be aware in, in Europe, we have some really challenging <laughs> GMO legislation <Yes. laughs> around um, regulating clinical trials. Now, there is some derogation from the, the GMO requirements within the recent Commission's FAQ on GMO legislation, the genetic modification is a non-viral method. Mm. Um, there may be a derogation from doing that. Just as a caveat to that, it's not endorsed necessarily in all EU member states. So just be aware of that when you look at the guidance. And also one of them most notably is Germany, who do not endorse that particular derogation. And I know this is a, a particular hot topic, and I'm sure it's one that we will talk more in depth about in a future podcast. So do stay tuned for that. But um, in uh, sort of thinking about the allogeneic cell therapies, particularly and moving away from GMO, we talked quite a lot already about the immunogenicity concerns. It's one of the biggest issues, I think, that's going to face the development of allogeneic cell therapies. Are there any ways that we can, as developers, mitigate against those immunogenicity concerns or at least minimise the risks? Yeah, so essentially there's other ways where you can hide the cells in the immune system. So things like um, cell encapsulation techniques have been used for years. 
Mm. They're not. It's not a, a new technology specifically. Things like alginate encapsulation, for example. The problem is it still triggers an immune reaction. So now. Lots of companies are developing cellular products where they're encapsulated in genetically modified. Sorry, they have a genetically modified cell, but they'll encapsulate that inside an alginate capsule, which may be engineered in some way to mm. avoid the immune system. There may be, say, a small molecule component, a biological component, a device component, which allows you to do that. So a biomaterial, for example, which has been engineered to have certain surface characteristics to avoid immune detection. However, again, once you start introducing the biomaterials, small molecules, devices, use these kind of words, you're potentially moving over into different regulatory frameworks, mm. particularly that for combined or combination products. So it's just something to be aware of. Obviously, if you do start using these different technologies, there might be other legislative uh, things you need to take care of. And that's a really good uh, point, actually, into our, our next sort of topic is is the regulatory considerations and, and barriers, because, of course, there are so many scientific and technical considerations and challenges for developers. And that's only really half of the story. So we have uh, obviously our very competent scientists working in the background to develop these products. But of course, we've got to get them to market. So are there any um particular specific legislative or regulatory barriers i'm sure there's lots actually <laughs> that you can think of but any that particularly come to mind when you're considering getting an allogeneic cell therapy through the regulatory process yeah the thing that immediately springs to mind is things like the donor screening and donor testing requirements because there's a lot of variation alluded to earlier in the, in the discussion around that globally and how that's implemented you know, the most obvious example is that many countries will not accept donor material from European donors due to the theoretical risk of TSEs. Now, obviously, we hope we hope over time that will change and maybe it will. But at the time being, you know, that's not something a road you'd particularly want to go down. Mm -hmm. um, the US FDA has prescriptive, fairly prescriptive donor screening and testing requirements under Part 1271, such as the clear lab requirements, the use of FDA approved test kits, some fairly prescriptive rules around patient examination techniques, etc., and what gets documented. EU has similarly broad, um, similar donor testing requirements, that which are broadly similar, I should say. But many kits that are out there are not necessarily both FDA approved and CE marked in Europe. So you right. might have the same kit which may have one approval and not another. So it might be that you have a test kit which you might need to show equivalence if it's not approved in another major market, for example. You might have a, a, an FDA-approved test kit, which is not CE-marked, but you have to show that that FDA-approved test kit meets the requirements from a technical perspective that you would have to, to meet in Europe. Okay. Well, so just another added complication, I guess. And there are so many different things to consider. But as you said, the, the complexity of donor material is probably, first and foremost, it's, it's step one, isn't it? Um, yeah. To make sure that you've got your donor material um, from a... a an appropriate source and, and with the appropriate kind of caveats around that. Are there any ways to manage donor complexity? Because it is something that's a huge consideration for developers. Yeah, definitely. A lot of due diligence work pays off when it comes okay. to managing donor complexity. So sounds like an obvious thing to say, but it's probably not a good idea to select donors from countries with, high <laughs> rel with what are perceived to be higher risk of TSEs. Yeah. So people look generally to Australia, New Zealand, potentially the United States to carry out diligence on the screening procedures which are used in the first place so that they're compliant with things like part 1271 
um, and also using test kits, which ideally test kits which are approved because that solves you a lot of problems. Like I said before, it's not always the way. It's not always possible. I would say avoiding donor pooling and be mindful that donor variability can be an issue from a CMC perspective also further down the line in terms of both your process and your product consistency. And also the EU member states can have more specific donor testing and screening requirements. So you have to consider a different approach of donor testing in different EU countries and not just look at the directive which governs the whole of the, you know, the European Union. There are other things as well specific to the US. For example, some providers of cell or tissue-based starting materials, and I'm thinking of master cell banks here used for pluripotence, for example. They might have filed a, a master file to the FDA, so they yeah. might have a a dossier or a package which is already compliant which already ticks a lot of those boxes for you which is uh, very helpful if you're in the the US but maybe not so much in the not, EU <laughs> not so much in the EU unfortunately and again you know you can discuss the benefits and the the minuses and pluses for for master files generally but there might mm. be some benefits certainly in the US if you can if you can go through that compliance step more easily and ideally using a master cell bank from a single donor which can be thoroughly tested and reproduced. I mean, that's that's easier said than done, and certain cell types lend themselves to it more than others, such as mesenchymal cells or pluripotent cells. But you know, it's it's certainly something that if you can do, would would have mm. a lot of benefit. Yeah, and as you said, these things sound relatively straightforward and obvious, but as we know, they're usually the things that are forgotten or maybe not considered because they are obvious people take that for granted so it's um, certainly something to bear in mind when you are looking to develop um, any cell therapy but in particular an allogeneic one. Patrick I think we could probably talk for quite some time about the nuances in the development of allogeneic cell therapies and uh, and what should be considered and I, I'm going to put you on the spot here and, and ask a question that if you were looking to develop an allogeneic cell therapy if you could just give maybe a couple of points of advice going forward for developers that are looking to get into this area are there any particular regulatory considerations or otherwise that you would say you absolutely must think about these things sure yeah i think it splits it down the middle a little bit really so there's things that are the gene editing technologies for example and any form of non-viral genetic modification or viral modification you know whichever whichever path you go down if we look at gene editing, it's still in its infancy from a regulatory perspective, although the science has been around a long time. So the regulators are still building guidance, are still building knowledge. There's a lot of discussion still to be had, a lot of scientific discussion, a lot of advice that can be had. There's fewer rules. So, you know, you have an opportunity there to have that dialogue. So I'd say take that opportunity and have that dialogue with regulators. Mm. Everyone says the same thing, you know, to have dialogue with regulators. But in this case, it really is true because we are we are on a steep learning curve. Yeah. However, when you have something like the donor testing requirements, they're, they're sort of enshrined in, in hard legislation. There's much less flexibility around them. So, you know, it's something you really want to get right from the start. So obviously talking to regulators is one thing, but doing your diligence to make sure that you're compliant is, is probably the best piece of advice I could give. That's really useful advice and, and something really practical because I think we always think about the evolution of pharmaceuticals and the development into the cell therapy space and then into gene therapy and further beyond as sort of a, a moving feast, an evolution, and we're learning as we're going along. But as you said, there are actually some elements 
of this process and of this development space that are actually quite fixed. And so um, providing practical advice like that is is really helpful. Um, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I think everyone will agree it's been um, incredibly insightful and, and very interesting. We really hope that you have enjoyed listening into today's episode and we hope that you will join us again for more conversations in drug development soon. Thank you for listening to Conversations in Drug Development, the podcast series brought to you by the team at Boyd's. Don't forget to follow us on the usual podcast platforms or visit our website to ensure you don't miss out on any of our future episodes.